should be on page 620. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand on the reading of God's Word. Isaiah 5, 1 through 7. Let me sing now for my beloved a song of my beloved about his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, cleared it of stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in the middle of it and also carved out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it only produced worthless ones. And now, you inhabitants of Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there for me to do for my vineyard that I might not have done, that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned nor hoed. Briars and thorns will come up. I will also command the rains or command the clouds not to rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of the armies is the house of Israel, and the people of Judah are his delightful plant. So he waited for justice, but behold, there was bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of help. Title of the message tonight is What God Expects. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. You are great and wonderful, worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. We thank you for the privilege we have to study your word tonight. Uh, Lord, what an opportunity is ours. Thank you, uh, Father, for your word and our language. Thank you for the freedom we have to gather. Thank you for your spirit who teaches us and leads us into all truth. Tonight, as we come to this passage, Father, let your Holy Spirit come and open our hearts and minds to what your living word has for us. Speak to us tonight from your word. And Father, if we need to be challenged, then challenge us. If we need to be convicted, convict us. If we need to be encouraged, encourage us. If we need to be strengthened, strengthen us. Father, whatever is needed in our lives, you know whatever is needed in our lives, you're able to perform. So tonight, use your word and your spirit to work together to help us to become more and more like Jesus. Fill this place with your spirit and your glory. Uh, Let us be transformed evermore into the likeness of Christ. Fill me with your spirit. Give me clarity of thought. Clarity of speech, help me not to be a hindrance in any way to what you want said or what you want done. Have your way, we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. All right, you may be seated. God, through Isaiah, tells us a parable about Israel, the people of God. In this parable, God expresses his, what I guess you would call, disappointment. In the way the people of Israel were in light of their of his care. Verse 7, you see the vineyard of the Lord of armies is the house of Israel. The people of Judah are his delightful plant. What he waited for, what he expected was there to be justice throughout the land. But rather there was the, the bloodshed of injustice and oppression. What he expected was there to be righteousness and how they dealt with others. But instead there was the cry of the oppressed calling on God to help. And the people of God were not what God intended on them. To be, We see in verse 1 and 2 that, that God had done much for them. That they were, on a, they were a vineyard on a fertile hill. He had dug it all around. He had cleared the stones. He had planted it with the choicest vine. And he had built a tower in the middle of it and carved out a wine vat in it. All of this pictures God's great care for His people. God doing all that He Really, I guess all that he could do, all that needed to be done, so that they would produce much fruit for his glory. He had taken great care to provide for them, to make sure everything was right, so they could be successful, so that they could be righteous, so that they could bear much fruit for his glory. And yet, it didn't happen. We see that he not only set them up for this success, but he expected it. Look at verse 2, the end of verse 2. Then he expected it. To produce good grapes, but it only produced worthless ones. In the last half of verse 4, why when I expected it to produce good grapes, 
did it produce worthless ones. Not only did God do all of this work so that they could produce good fruit, they would bear good fruit, He expected it. He didn't do this without an expectation that His care for them would result in something from them. And rather than producing the good fruit, the good grapes, they produced worthless ones. Now the fact that they didn't bear good fruit wasn't because of neglect or failure on God's part. It wasn't because God didn't do everything that needed to be done so they could produce good grapes. It wasn't because God neglected to equip them to be able to bear the kind of fruit He wanted them to bear. Rather, the failure to produce fruit was entirely their fault, their sin, their rebellion, their their lack of willingness to cultivate what God had done so this fruit would be born in their lives. Verse 3 and 4, God asked the people to give an answer as to why they're not bearing fruit. And he asked them in an interesting way. He says, now you inhabitants of Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What he's saying is, you tell me whose fault this is. I planted it, I did all of this, and it didn't produce good fruit. Whose fault is it? Is it Jerusalem's fault? Is it your fault you're not producing what I've expected? Or is it my fault? And then he asked them in verse 4, What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Right? What If you say it's my fault, you didn't produce what you were supposed to, what did I lack? What was it I could have done for you, should have done for you, but didn't do for you? And this is the reason you're not producing fruit. Now, of course, the point of the question is to cause them to recognize that this is their fault. It's not that God has failed them, it's they have failed God. It's not that God didn't equip them, it's that they, they chose not to take advantage of God's equipping. They had rebelled, they had sinned. I mean, you just kind of think about what all God had done in the history of the nation of Israel. When God chose a people, He chose Israel. Of all the peoples of the earth, of all of the the people on earth He could have chosen, He chose Abraham and His descendants after Him. Of course, God didn't have to choose Abraham. He could have chosen anyone. It was just His sovereign free choice to choose them above all the people of the earth to be the people whom the Messiah would come to be His chosen particular people. He prospered them in slavery. While they were harshly oppressed in an effort to keep them from thriving, He caused them to thrive to the point their oppressors were afraid of them. He delivered them from slavery with a a mighty hand. With powerful acts of His glory and His sovereignty, He delivered them out of slavery. He led them day and night, provided for them all along their journey, took them across the river into the promised land, conquered their enemies in the promised land, and gave them houses they didn't build, vineyards they didn't plant, and and just prospered them significantly. He had made a covenant with them that they above all people on the earth would be His particular treasure. When they strayed, He sent prophets to correct them, And tell them to turn back and not do this thing God did not like. When they were oppressed and they were defeated and they cried out to God for help, He raised up judges to deliver them from oppression and to lead them back into victory. And just generally had provided for them in every way imaginable. And despite all of God's care for them, there was no fruit from them. So we see in verse 5 through 7, there would be consequences For their lack of fruit. So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I'll remove its hedge and it'll be consumed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed. Briars and thorns will come up. I will also command the clouds not to rain on it. Now something that is important to notice in these consequences It's all of the I wills, what I'm going to do. I will do it. What was about to happen, these consequences, it was God himself doing it. It wouldn't be random chance and circumstance. It wasn't going to be bad luck. It was going to be God. God himself uh, doing these things to them as a part of divine chastisement for their lack 
of bearing the good fruit God expected from them. Now, while this is a parable about Israel in Isaiah's day, it does speak to us as well. For the God who worked for his people then works for his people now. And also the God who expected good fruit from his good work then is the God who expects good fruit from his good work now. Jesus tells or Jesus gives us a living parable that is somewhat similar to this. It says in the early morning, he was returning to the city and he became hungry. Seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves alone. And he said to it, no longer shall there be any fruit from you. And at once the fig withered. Now this story can be confusing, especially if you harmonize the accounts with Mark. Mark gives us a few details that Matthew does not. Mark, again, says, as it says here, says Jesus was hungry. But he also tells us Jesus saw the leaves from far away. But then Mark tells us the most interesting detail of all. He says there were no figs on it because it wasn't yet the time for figs. Which therein makes the story confusing. If it was too early in the season for figs, why did Jesus go to look for figs on the tree? And if it was too early in the season for figs, why would Jesus be upset that there weren't figs? And if it was too early in the season for figs, why would Jesus curse the tree and it would wither up at the roots and die? Well, to understand the story, we do have to consider the context and all of the surrounding information. This takes place after his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He has come in. The people have laid out the palm branches, cried out, Hosanna to God in the highest. He is rapidly headed toward the cross. He is headed from here to the temple where he will then clear out the money changers and the merchants. And he is headed into some massive conflict with the chief priests. Now, when you think about Jesus and the conflicts he had, where did the greatest amount of his conflict arise? Where did the, the brunt of his wrath, earthly wrath, where did it fall on on this earth? Did it fall on the tax collectors and the prostitutes, the really wicked sinners of the day? It didn't. It fell on the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. Now, did the religious leaders, did they live wicked, immoral lives? Well, not outwardly, they didn't. No. Outwardly, they were righteous. Outwardly, they, they did all the things the law commanded and how they dressed and how they washed their hands and, and how they made sacrifices and how they tithed. Yet the problem was their lives didn't produce any real fruit. It didn't bear the good fruit God expected them to bear. They had the outward appearance of righteousness, but the inward things that would show God's work in their lives was not there. Now, the trees, back to the trees. Some fig trees are early fig trees. That means what it sounds like. They produce figs ahead of the normal fig producing time. And probably most importantly along with this is figs produced figs before they produced the leaves. So if you ever saw a fig tree with leaves, it was a safe assumption that the tree should have fruit on it. But this one didn't. It was nothing but leaves. And so here's how all of this ties together. The scribes and the Pharisees of Jesus' day had all the outward acts of being righteous, the, the leaves, if you will. But there was no fruit from their supposed righteousness. Their religion and their righteousness was nothing but an appearance, a false appearance. What was going on in their heart and in their lives was vastly different than what God expected and wanted from them. Through the fig tree, Jesus is declaring to them and to us in a mighty way that the appearance of religion is not enough. The lesson in Matthew's gospel, the lesson of the parable of the vineyard is exactly the same. Good fruit is expected from the good work of God in our lives. As with Israel, God loves us and has taken great care of us and has tenderly and lovingly set us up to bear much fruit from his care and for his glory. Think about some of the ways God has cared for us 
and set us up to bear fruit from his care and for his glory. Of course, ultimately, we would have to say Jesus is first and foremost. Jesus has come. Jesus has died. Jesus has risen again. And now because of him, our sins can be forgiven. We can be given a new nature. We can genuinely know God, love him and experience him in our lives. God has taken great care of of us in giving us Jesus. But God has not only given us Jesus, God has given us His Holy Spirit to live within us, to empower us, to lead us, to teach us the truth. Think about the the greatness of that. We, In our day, it's easy for us to not be as impressed by the fact that Spirit lives within us as we ought to be. Because we all have the Holy Spirit if we're born again. But it wasn't that way in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit fell on prophets, and on the high priest, and on kings, and then on random various people at certain times. But the Holy Spirit never stayed on or in anyone permanently. The Holy Spirit would anoint them for a task, and then the Holy Spirit would depart. And then the Holy Spirit would anoint them for a task, and then the Holy Spirit would depart. But that's not the way it is with us. The moment, really before the moment we were saved, the Holy Spirit is the one who revealed Jesus to us. Showed us our need for Jesus. And then when we repented and we believed the gospel, the Holy Spirit caused us to be born again. He dwelled inside us. He gave us a spiritual gift. He works to lead us and empower us. God has has done a lot to ensure we bear fruit for His glory by giving us His Holy Spirit. He has given us the church. Um, and of course, the church as a whole. Not just, I think, in, I'm going to talk about it in our two ways. In, in the big scheme of things, the church, that the church is meant to be a place where other disciples gather together and they're strengthened and they're encouraged and they're ready to, to go back out into the darkness and be disciples of Jesus in a dark and a dying world. You read through the book of Acts. That's what it was. They were glad to gather together because the world outside was hard and they needed the strength and encouragement they received from one another. That's what the church is meant to be. Then, of course, there's the blessing of a local church like what we have. It's cold out there. It's warm in here. We have padded pews. We have well-lit sanctuary. I mean, we have so much in just this. Not, and then we, the facility isn't the church. But what an amazing thing God has given us here to enable us to come, to learn, to be encouraged, to be strengthened, and to draw closer to Him. God has given us His Word in our language. Again, that's one of those things we don't think about. But if you have a physical copy of the Bible with you tonight, hold it up. Okay, so many of us do. Now, if you have a virtual copy or like you version or something like that, hold that up. Right? Now, we, so we all have the Bible in various ways. I bet you we don't even all have the same translation. I have a New American Standard 2020. Does anybody else have that translation? Okay, who has a King James? Who has an NIV? Who has an NLT? Who has an ESV? Right, we have... Think about that. We have a variety of that. And then if you have on your, uh, you have U version or something, you essentially have every English version that has ever been made at your fingertips. There are 2,200 languages where they have not a, not a portion of Scripture in their native language. There are over 350 million people today, today, who do not have the Bible in their language. But we have a multitude of Bibles in our language. We have freedom. We're not a, the police aren't about to break in here and haul us off to prison. No one's secretly spying on us so they can report back to the, the party, the government, to say we've gathered here. I get reports from our, our brothers and sisters in India through the Oklahoma Mission Board. They haven't been able to baptize in quite a while because it's against the law in some of the in some of the states where they live to baptize. In other states, they have to find ways to do it deep in the darkness at night because if the Hindu fundamentalists see them baptizing, they will beat them everyone to death, and the police will turn a blind eye. That's not our fear. 
We have the freedom to gather. We have the we can go stand out on the street corner and shout the gospel through a bullhorn if we wanted to. And nobody could stop us. What freedom we have. We have ease of access to great spiritual and theological resources. Just here in the church. Out in the foyer on the table, there are two separate devotions. You can get our daily bread and the one that's put out by Randall House. Both are excellent devotions. If you have you version, there is an untold amount of devotions on there that you can get and subscribe to all free. If you have an electronic device so that you have an electronic book, you can go to Amazon and other places and you can get books from guys like D.L. Moody, great heroes of the past for free. Others, the modern stuff is relatively inexpensive and you push a button and it downloads to your device and you have it like that. You, we have access to more spiritual and theological resources, good stuff, in our day than in any generation that has gone before us. God has taken great care of us. And so he does expect good fruit from us. Jesus said, my father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. God intends to be glorified in us and through us in our lives. And one of the ways this is to happen is by our bearing much fruit from his good work in our lives. So all of this to get to the key point for tonight. God expects good fruit from his good work in our lives. God expects good fruit from his good work in our lives. And what I want to do for the rest of our time, the majority of the rest of our time, is just show you quickly three obvious kinds of fruit God expects and how all flow from his good care and his good work in our lives. First is the Holy Spirit. We've talked about the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit, He is the one who reveals Jesus to us. He is the one who saves us and changes us and indwells us and gifts us and empowers us and leads us. And a part of what He does is change us. And a part of the change He produces in our lives is producing what God's Word calls His fruit in us. Fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Let me just quickly hit on each one of those and what they mean. We're familiar with it, but it's always good to be reminded. The word for love is the word agape. Agape love is always used to talk about God's love for humanity. It is the kind of love displayed by Jesus on the cross. It is the kind of love Jesus said would be the distinctive mark of those who are truly his disciples. It is a sacrificial love given to people even if they are unworthy and even if they do not return such love. This is what the Holy Spirit produces within us. Joy. Joy is an inward rejoicing remaining with us despite the circumstances in our lives. The joy the Holy Spirit produces is the kind that enables us at midnight, though we're imprisoned and badly beaten, to sing praises to God while the rest of the prisoners watch as a testimony of what God is doing in our lives. Peace is an inner quietness, lack of anxiety, coming because we trust God's sovereignty no matter what is going on in the world around us. Jesus said his peace was a gift to us. Patience. Some translations say long-suffering. That's how I have it remembered in my mind. Patience is the opposite of being short-tempered. This is a hard one. It's putting up with people who irritate us. Patiently putting up with people who irritate us. Bearing with annoyances and inconveniences without complaint. Patience does not lose its temper and fly off the handle when provoked. Kindness. Kindness is taking the initiative to respond to the needs of others. That's a big one because it's taking initiative. Biblical kindness is I see the need, and so then I initiate the process of doing what I can to meet that need. Faith or goodness. This is reaching out to do good for others. Goodness doesn't repay evil for evil. Instead, as God's word says, it seeks to overcome evil with good. 
Think about, again, how hard that is. Faithfulness means you're trustworthy. If you say you'll do it, you will. As the psalmist says, keep your word even if it hurts. Gentleness. Gentleness means to be meek, tender, humble, mild, considerate. Cares for the the feelings of others and feels with them. And and gentleness also deals with our interaction with others. So it's not just an inner thing. It is how we interact with other people. We're gentle, maybe with difficult people. Gentle with those who are trying to provoke us. Gentle with those who have wronged us. Self-control. Self-control is basically choosing to do what we know to be right, despite the desire to do what we know to be wrong. So the Holy Spirit who lives within us, He worked constantly, not occasionally, but constantly to produce these fruits in us. Now what makes this important is these fruits of the Spirit are really only seen in times of where the opposite is our natural response. right? Because any person on the earth, an unbelieving, unregenerate atheist, they can occasionally love someone. Anyone can love those who love them. Pretty well anyone can have joy when everything in their life is going the way it ought to. Peace is easy so long as my life is ordered in the way I think it ought to be. You see what I'm saying? Anyone can have a measure of these without God, without the Holy Spirit, without anything. That's not supernatural. The supernatural love the Holy Spirit produces is the kind that allows us to love difficult and unlovable people, to love our enemies, to do good to those who hurt us, to pray for those who despitefully Use us. The joy of the Lord is supernatural. It is the joy of the Lord when the circumstances are difficult and they conspire to steal our joy. The peace that passes all understanding is not supernatural until we're in the middle of a storm and everything around us makes us want to be anxious. We're only supernaturally patient When we're tempted to act in anger or we're provoked in some way. It's only a supernatural kindness when we want to be unkind. You people probably never want to be unkind. But I'm, I'm telling you, there are people that want to be unkind at times. Maybe because they've been provoked. Maybe because something has happened. Maybe because they're just angry. And they want to be unkind. And there is a supernatural power that prevents that. It's no challenge to be good until our sinful nature tempts us to be cruel. And then there is the supernatural goodness that prevails. Faithfulness is supernatural when we want to be unfaithful. We don't want to keep our word. Gentleness is only supernatural when we want to be harsh with people. And self-control is only supernatural when we're restraining the urge to do something else. We're choosing to do what we know God wants us to do rather than what our nature wants us to do. As I said, anyone can show a measure of these these at any time in their life. But only the Spirit-filled disciple of Jesus can consistently bear these fruit in their lives. And this fruit of the Spirit should be visible in the life of every born-again disciple of Jesus Christ. This is part of the good work of God in our lives. He has given us His Spirit, and the Spirit He has given us produces this within us. And therefore, since God is doing this good work in our lives, He expects this good fruit from our lives. Secondly, a desire for God's Word. When Jesus saves someone, He always changes them. When the Holy Spirit indwells someone, He always changes them. Because we're not how we ought to be. That's just the facts of life. The Holy Spirit is always working to change us. One of the major areas of change that we can say this is definitely a supernatural desire, something that is from God, is a change in desires. One change, one desire that will be changed when someone is saved and filled with the Spirit is a desire for God's Word. 
like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. So, the last part is kind of the key. If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord, something should result from that. That's what it says. So part of God's good work in our lives is giving us his kindness and our experience of it in our lives. And if we have experienced this good work of God's kindness in our lives, then a good fruit that should flow from that is a desire for God's word. A longing, it says in my translation. The word translated as long, it means to have an intense desire or to crave something. But it not only implies a, a, a longing or a craving or a wanting for something, but it pictures a willingness to do whatever is necessary to satisfy this longing. And most importantly, the wording in the Greek implies this longing is active and objective. It's active in that those with this longing don't just sit down and say, I, I, wish, I wish I had this thing I wanted. Rather, it pictures them getting up and doing something to acquire what they long for. Right? It's active in leading them to do what it is. And it's objective. And by objective, it means there's only one thing that will satisfy this longing within them. So if you put all of that with what we see here, those who have tasted the kindness of the Lord, they have an active desire for God's word. And this desire cannot be satisfied by anything other than God's word. It can't be satisfied by desperate housewives. It can't be satisfied by Francine Rivers books. It can't be satisfied by anything other than the, notice the, the pure milk of the word. The pure word of God. This, this is a desire that even would transcend devotions. It's the kind of desire that says, I enjoy our daily bread, but I, I just want to read my Bible. I just want the Word. Now, something we may not catch with this that I think is important for us to understand is the, the longing described here. It would be a longing for the preaching of God's Word as well as the personal reading of God's Word. As we've already established, we all have personal copies of God's Word. And most of us probably have multiple personal copies of God's Word. And because we've been raised in a generation, in a world where that was the way it was, we read this and we think, well, that means I just want to stay and read my Bible. But when Peter wrote this, personal copies of the Bible didn't exist. A church would be lucky, blessed beyond measure, if they had a completed copy of God's Word from Genesis to Malachi and what other New Testament books might have been written. If they had all of that, that was the richest church in the surrounding area. There was really only one way for them to, to have that pure milk of the Word. It wasn't to go home, to sit down in the rocking chair, get a good cup of coffee and sit alone in the corner and read it. It was to gather with other disciples of Jesus as the word of God was read and taught. That was their longing. That was the desire. So it, I think it would say in our day, because we do have copies, it, it surely would mean that time in the corner with our cup of coffee, just everything else quiet, reading our Bible. Absolutely, it would, it would include that. But it can't merely be that. It also must mean what it initially meant, and that would be what we're doing tonight. The gathering together to study God's word corporately. It cannot legitimately be limited to personal study. A desire for God's word is a desire to personally study it. But it is also a desire to hear it preached, to study it corporately with others. This is why preaching is a part of worship. Worship is essentially declaring God's worth. It's not singing. It's not giving. It's not any of those things. Those are acts of worship. Worship itself is declaring God's worth. What greater way to declare God's worth 
than to say there are going to be certain times of my life where it doesn't matter what's going on in the world, I am going to gather with other disciples of Jesus and study the Word with them. I mean, those cars sitting out in our parking lot on this cold, dark night are a testimony about what's important in our lives. Those cars out front on a Sunday morning are a testimony to what's important in our lives. And, and make no mistake, those cars in our driveways on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights are also a testimony about what's important in our lives. We declare God's worth in part by gathering and worshiping and studying His Word together. So if I have tasted the kindness of the Lord, that is the good work of God in my life, then one of the good fruit from that would be a desire for His Word. Now you say, well, why is that the natural response? Why does a tasting of the goodness of the Lord, the kindness of the Lord, lead me to more in the Word? Because it's in the Word we learn more about who God is and what God's like. If we want to know how to have peace that passes all understanding, unless we're in the Bible and reading Philippians 4 about praying, we're going to miss it. We're not going to have it by accident. This book is going to be what tells us who God is, what God is like, how we live for Him, how we do those things that make it more possible for us to experience more of His goodness, more of His kindness, more of His presence, more of His grace. There is... No legitimate way to have a strong, deep, abiding relationship with God apart from a strong, deep, abiding relationship with God's Word. God's Word always draws us deeper to God. And so we taste the kindness of the Lord. We get into the Word. In the Word, we taste more of God's kindness. So we want more of what gives us that kindness. And it's a continual cycle. And one last thing, and this isn't really a part of what I have, just... Like newborn babies. We've all either had babies or we've cared for babies. And when a baby's hungry, it's only one thing a baby wants. That's to be fed. They don't want to be rocked. They don't want to be sung to. They don't want their diaper changed. They don't want music to play. They want food. Shut up and feed me. That's the picture of how we're supposed to long for the Word of God. The longing for God's word is a part of the good fruit flowing from God's good work of being kind to us. Is this fruit visible in our lives? And and then finally, the last one, a life of obedience. When we talk about changes being made after we've been saved, the change we often focus on is the change in our eternal destiny. And that's significant. I, I would never underestimate The importance or understate the importance of being changed from going to hell to going to heaven. That is huge. But Jesus doesn't just change our eternal destiny and then leave us in this life the way he found us. He changes us here and now as well. He changes who we are at the core of our being so we live differently now while we wait for that time to go to heaven. Right? Now, by this, the Apostle John says, we know that we have come to know Him, Jesus, if we keep His commands, commandments. The one who says, I have come to know Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in Him. Meeting Jesus is a life-altering event. Knowing Jesus is different than knowing anybody else in the world. A person who meets Jesus and comes to know Jesus will definitely be changed by Jesus. They, they cannot remain the same. We, we see this not only in this sort of teaching, but in the example. The only people in the Gospels who came to Jesus and left unchanged were those who rejected Him. Those who came to Jesus and embraced Him left different than when they came to Jesus. So how do we know we have come to know Jesus if we keep His commandments? I mean, that's not... There there are things in God's Word that are hard to understand. But that's not one of them. I mean, that is is so clear, we want to make it complicated. 
Because it's so clear that it, it's super challenging. But if we're going to say, I take God's word seriously, it is truly the word of God, then we have to take it at face value. And at face value, what the Apostle John is saying is, the evidence of someone who has known, who knows Jesus, is a life of obeying Jesus. That's the clear, just plain reading. But not only that, in case we didn't miss what the opposite of that would be, he states that as well. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Again, I mean, that's brutally clear. I mean, if someone says, I know Jesus, I'm saved. I'm a believer. I'm a Christian. However they want to word it. And yet their life does not testify of obedience to Him. Are they saved? John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says they're a liar. And the truth is not in them. The truth would be, like in God's Word, there are three important things listed as the truth. Jesus is the truth. The Word of God is the truth. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. So if the truth is not in them, can they possibly be saved at that moment? No, they're not. So again, this is really important. Someone who has come to know him, that's the the good work of God in our lives, to let us know his son. Not know about him, but, but know him in a real, experiential, knowing way. And once that happens, the good fruit flowing from that is obedience to this Son God has enabled us to know. And where there is no obedience, there is no knowing. Now, this, as hard as it is, is not the stiffest part of what John has to say about this. For this is the love of God. That we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. Man, that's, again, it's one of those where you think, well, that's, that's really clear. So what, what's the, the greatest sign? I, I know Jesus and I love God. Not only do I keep his commandments, but his commandments aren't a burden. Now think about this in relation to marriage. Everything your spouse does for you always gets on their nerves. Oh, my gosh. Everything is always a burden. No matter how big or how small what you ask them to do is, it bothers them, it grates them. It, they Oh! Does that signify a close, healthy marriage? Of course not. So what would that signify about our relationship with God if everything we're supposed to do for Him gripes us, irritates us, vexes us, burdens us? Things are not right. Things are not as they should be. So not only should we ask, do I obey Jesus? But why do I obey Jesus? What is my attitude toward my obedience to Jesus? The loving, grateful, joyful obedience to Jesus is part of the, the good fruit Flowing from God's good work of allowing us to know Jesus. Is this fruit visible in our lives? Now, obviously, what we've talked about with these three, it's not everything. We could spend a whole long series on just the kind of fruit the good work of God should produce in our lives. But if we were to boil these three down into one thought on the kind of fruit that should be born in our lives. We could say good fruit flowing from God's good work in our lives is visible, noticeable, changes our character. So take the fruit of the spirit changes our character, right? And the the person bearing the fruit of the Spirit is noticeably, visibly different from a person who does not bear the fruit of the Spirit. 
A longing for God's word is a change in our character. And what the things we do in order to satisfy that longing are visible and noticeable. A life of obedience, obedience to Jesus is a change in our character. And it is visible and noticeable by the lifestyle we live. So a question we all have to ask and answer is this. What good fruit from God's good work is visible in my life? What actions do we take just because of the good work God has done in us and through us and for us? Not because we're older. Not because we've gotten married. Not because we have emotionally matured. Not because of any external circumstances, but simply because of the good work of God. The good work God has done in us and through us and for us. What is different in our character because of the good work God has done in us and through us and for us? Not because we're older. Not because we've gotten married. Not because we've emotionally matured. Not because of any external circumstances, just because of the good work God has done in us, through us, and for us. As with Israel, if we're not bearing good fruit, the problem is not with God. The problem is not God has not worked in our lives. He has. If you're a Christian, if you've been born again, God has worked in your life in tremendous ways. If you're an American, God has worked in your life in tremendous ways, given you the freedom to worship. The the number of ways God has worked in all of our lives is significant. So the lack of fruit in our lives is not because of any neglect on God's part. It's not because God has chosen not to make us fruit-bearing people. It is solely us, our sin, our rebellion, our attitudes. Our laziness keeping us from bearing fruit. And this is important because there are consequences for not bearing fruit. In Isaiah, God was going to do things to bring earthly consequences into their lives because the good fruit he expected wasn't there. In Matthew, Jesus cursed the fig tree and it withered up and died because it wasn't bearing the good fruit It was supposed to bear. Both images paint serious consequences for a lack of fruit. God has put his good work into us. Therefore, he expects good fruit from us. But if there isn't fruit in our lives, there is hope. Jesus told a parable. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard. And he came looking for fruit on it and he didn't find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, look, for three years I've come looking for fruit on this tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? The the keeper said, sir, leave it alone for this year till I dig around it and put in the fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, then cut it down. If you're alive... And you haven't been cut down. And if you haven't been cut down, it's because Jesus, the vineyard keeper, is still tenderly working on you, caring for you. But there is an end time. There is a point in which the consequences come. So we must repent. And we must believe the gospel if we're not bearing fruit. Repentance is a change of mind about God and sin resulting in a change of life. If you are not bearing fruit, there is something in your life preventing you from bearing fruit. And chances are, you know what that something is. It may be a particular sin you have determined is okay. It may be an attitude about what it is to be a Christian. It may be laziness not to cultivate God's work in your life. It may be rebellion because you're not going to do anything you don't want to do. It may be a false belief because you think you have a special deal with God. Something 
Whatever it is, it's keeping you from bearing fruit. Something, you probably know what it is, is keeping you from bearing fruit. And it must be repented of. And then we must believe the gospel. The greatest good work God has done for any of us is through the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus. The gospel is the foundational good work of all the good works God does in us, through us, and for us. Therefore, we must believe the gospel. But believing the gospel, and this is important for us to understand, isn't something we did at some point in the past. It's something we have to do every day of our lives. I believed the gospel for the first time in 1992. And because I believed the gospel, I went to Jesus. But I didn't just believe the gospel that one night in 1992. I have had to believe the gospel every single day since then. Because I have needed Jesus every single day since then. The gospel not only bears fruit initially, the gospel bears fruit continually according to Colossians 1, 5, and 6. Part of the way the gospel bears fruit continually is by taking us back to Jesus. As the gospel takes us back to Jesus, it enables us to abide in Jesus. And then through Jesus, fruit flows. Again, you think of all the fruit we talked about, just what we talked about tonight. Fruit of the Spirit. Jesus says if we abide in Him, He abides in us, we bear good fruit. Jesus is the one who pours out the Spirit. Jesus is the one who gives the Spirit. So if I want the fruit of the Spirit, who do I seek for that? I seek Jesus. And as I go to Jesus, it restores the connection and the Spirit can flow into me. The Word. The Word ultimately always testifies about Jesus. He is the point of it all. So as I study the Word, it draws me back to Jesus. I want more of Jesus. And it's a continual process. And of course, the life of obedience flows from knowing Him. The better I know Jesus, the more I want to obey Him. The more I want to do His will. Jesus is the center of it all. We have to believe the gospel because the gospel pushes us back to Jesus, which enables all of this good fruit to flow out of our lives. If we aren't bearing good fruit as a result of God's good work in us, through us, and for us, We must repent. We must believe the gospel. Repent of what's keeping us from being unfruitful. Believe the gospel afresh and let us take us back to Jesus so we can abide in Jesus and bear fruit through Jesus.